Well, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts, so if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up or turn in your device and your app, whatever you have, to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today, and, and before we get started, I want to ask you to think about something, and just think about what your reaction is to this. And as a dad and you know, witnessing the, the families up here on stage, this is certainly on our minds as parents, but what do you think of when you think of today's culture? What do you think of when you think of today's culture? What pops into your head? Is it, is it a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? I would say a lot of people, probably most people, maybe all people would think a lot of negative things when we think about the culture of today. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of tribalism. There's a lot of immorality. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of things we don't want our kids to see or be involved with. In fact, for parents, it causes a tremendous amount of anxiety trying to keep our kids away from the stuff that they shouldn't be into because it just seems like it's everywhere. And so most people, no matter what background you come from, no matter what religion you ascribe to, no matter which side of the aisle you vote on or whatever you do there, you're probably looking around today and going, man, things are pretty rough. Things are pretty bad. And there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of division and there's a lot of stuff that I just wish wasn't in the world. And what do you do about that? What do you do about a culture that just seems so messed up? The question I want to ask you is this. Why does it seem like the culture today is more crooked than ever? Why does it seem like the culture today is more crooked than ever? Now, this is not a new question per se, because a couple thousand years ago in the Bible, we, we get a special phrase that basically means the, the same type of thing. Only in biblical terminology, instead of saying culture, they would say this generation, this generation. So at one point, Peter is given a message and he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The idea was that the culture is terrible. The, the, the world around us is horrible, and we've got to do something about that. And I, it's easy to think that it's worse than it's ever been, okay? Why is it right now this is so bad? You just look around. You look on the internet. You look on TV. Um, you, you look on all the different social apps that we have, and you're like, man, this culture is messed up. Is this the worst it's ever been? And I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure that it's actually gotten worse. It just changes form and changes shape. But it seems like every century feels that their century has the worst culture ever. And there's all these poets and philosophers and theologians mourning and lamenting their current culture. And I think there's a couple reasons why we feel like it's worse than it's ever been before. The first one is technological. So today, if you hear about something bad, you're going to hear about it within seconds of when it happened usually. Last night, there was some explosion that happened close enough to our house that we could hear it. And within seconds, people were on the apps talking about it, you know, like, what did you hear that? What do you think it was? Why was this close to it? And all that kind of stuff. So we get the information very, very quickly. And you know, the same thing was true back in the days of the early church. They had two major technological advances that allowed them to communicate very quickly and effectively and hear about all the bad stuff and the bad news very quickly, but also to spread bad cultural influences very quickly. That's something that Paul dealt with a lot with the early churches. He, he talked about issues that were coming in from other places. And the reasons, there were two technological reasons. Number one was the road network. The Romans were really, really good at building roads. And they built roads all over the place. Because that allowed their military to move somewhere very quickly if they needed to put down a revolt. A byproduct of that was everybody else got to use those roads too. And so news could travel quickly and messengers and all sorts of things could happen very, very quickly. The other technological change that happened was the Greek language became universal. And so communicating was quick and it was effective. 
And so in the early church days, you could get information and news and culture to spread in days instead of months. And today, because of our technological changes, you can get information and news and bad news and culture to spread in minutes instead of days. And so technology has changed the speed at which these things happen, but it's the same problems that happen in both cases. There's another reason why I think sometimes we look at our current culture and think, well, this is the worst it's ever been. And that's because we have this tendency to glorify the past and see the best things about the past while only seeing the worst things about the present. And it's just a natural thing that we do. We, have, we look on the past with nostalgia through rose-colored glasses. And movies and stories and the media have often portrayed the past with kind of a, a best possible light without sharing all of the grittiness that was there. Some of that's changing a little bit. Some of the TV shows and movies are getting a little more authentic and accurate in their depiction. But, but every century has had its problems and its issues, and that doesn't seem to change. Now, I don't say any of this to minimize the issues we face today. Not at all. I say this because I want to make a connection between what you and I probably feel today about our culture and what the early church felt about its culture. Because it's really not that different. Tribalism and division and fighting and immorality and all sorts of sexual perversions and many things out in the open that you wouldn't want out in the open. And this is what we deal with. It's what they dealt with. Yes, it looks a little different. The clothes look a little bit different. The technology looks a little different. It's the same problems. And the reason I want to make that connection is because what we're going to see today is Peter making the statement, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Or save yourselves from this perverse culture would be another way to translate that. And boy, that's relevant to you and me today, isn't it? I mean, we look around at us today and we think, man, this, is, this stuff is messed up. This world is messed up. And so what I want us to do is go back and look at what was Peter's message? What does he mean by save yourself from this perverse culture, this crooked generation? What was his advice to them? What did he tell them to do? Because I think that a lot of times we as followers of Jesus, and maybe not everyone here is, but those of us who are, would call themselves Christians, followers of Jesus, we go around spinning our wheels trying to do things that, that are missing a key point that Peter got and that Peter communicated about saving yourself from this crooked generation. So let's get into it, shall we? Uh, before we do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Let's just pause for a minute, pray, ask God for wisdom. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we ask you now to give us insight into your word, Lord. We know that these are your words, your truth that's been passed around through, passed down through centuries to us today, and that is just as relevant, and that your Holy Spirit is just as active and alive in our hearts as he was back then. God, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom now, to know how to live in response to what you have taught us. Us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse 22. Let me give you a little bit of the background here. A couple of weeks ago, John talked about the first half of a message that Peter gave. This was a sermon that Peter gave in response to a miracle. The miracle was the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. The disciples went out and, and the apostles got up in front of people in Jerusalem and they spoke, but everyone from all sorts of different walks of life and, and locations and different languages could hear them in their own language. And it was a miracle. It was amazing. And some people were confused by it, but other people said, how is it possible that they're speaking in my own language? Like nobody here knows my language. How is it that they're doing this in my native tongue? This doesn't make sense. So Peter gets up and he explains, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he gets to the meat of the message. Here's the point he really wants to make. And that's where we pick up in verse 22. Peter says, 
people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Now, if you've ever wondered why Jesus did all those miracles, it wasn't just to draw a crowd. It wasn't just for show. It wasn't just a nice presentation. Peter is telling us that the reason that those miracles happened was because it was God's endorsement of Jesus to say he's the real deal. He is who he says he is. He is the son of God, the Messiah. I used to be a notary. I haven't kept up with it, so I'm not anymore. So please don't ask me. In fact, that's probably a good reason to let it slip. But I used to be a notary, and so people would come to me when they needed to have a document notarized, which means I got that really cool stamp. You know, that's really all it means. And so I'm registered and I got the stamp and I can stamp a document if a person shows me their ID and sign my name and date it and all that stuff to say, yes, this person is who they say they are. And that was my stamp of authenticity for that person. Peter is telling us that the miracles, the signs and the wonders were God's stamp of authenticity onto Jesus to say he's the real deal. He is who he says he is. He's no ordinary man. This is something special. God has given a special gift in this area and allowed for these wonders and signs and miracles to endorse him. Now, of course, the people in this crowd are aware that Jesus is no longer with them. He's not around. Peter's the one speaking right now. And many of them are aware that Jesus had died recently. And so why is Peter making a big deal about this Jesus, the Nazarene, who they've heard about and some of them have seen and some of them will learn in a minute, were there as part of the crowd that shouted crucify him. And so he's, he's died. They know he's died. Why is Peter bringing this up? And if, if those miracles and wonders were the sign of God's endorsement, then that didn't work out real well. Because we know he was executed in a very public crucifixion. Peter anticipates this question. And he says, but God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Think about being in that crowd and hearing those words. This was God's endorsed person. And you nailed him to a cross and killed him. And it was part of God's plan. Peter continues, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death could not keep him in its grip. Peter wants them to know that the death of the savior and the resurrection of the savior was not a surprise to God. This was not an obstacle in his path that he had to adapt to. And oh, I never saw this coming. They killed him. All right, let's just bring him back. No, this was planned long ago. This was something that was all part of God's plan. He wants them to know this. This is part of a, a broader thing that God is doing. There needed to be the death of a savior because you and I are sinful people. We, we do sinful actions. We say sinful things. We have sinful thoughts. And so God, who is perfect and holy, cannot have us in his presence. And that presents a problem for us. Because at some point, everyone is going to be judged for their wrong deeds, and none of us are perfect. And we are going to be judged, and not just judged for our wrong deeds, but judged because of the fact that because we are not perfect, we cannot be with God for eternity. And so we go where God is not. We go to a place that we often call hell, separated from him forever. And that's not a very good outcome. And the only solution to that is someone who is perfect and sinless has to become a sacrifice to pay for those who are not. And there's only one person that qualifies, and that's God himself. Or more specifically, God, the son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us. Without his sacrifice, there is no payment for sins because we can't do it on our own. 
The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. So no one can boast about it. This is nothing that we can accomplish or that we can do. It's something that Jesus had to do for us. And it's part of God's plan. God planned for Jesus to come, to live on this earth, to die in our place as a sacrifice and to rise from the dead. And Peter wants them to know this is not unexpected. He's going to take it a step further. This is so not unexpected that he's going to show them in their own scriptures a reference to this that they probably did not understand until this moment. He's going to point them to Psalm 16. We're going to read it in Acts chapter 2 as it's quoted. In Acts chapter 2, verse 25, Peter says this. King David said this about him, about Jesus the Nazarene. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Now, at first glance, I read this and I think this is all about David, right? He's saying, uh, the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My body rests in hope. But then he says this phrase, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. And we might think that he's talking about David here. Maybe he's speaking of himself in the third person, that David is the holy one. But Peter wants them to think about this. Who is that holy one that David is talking about? And he gives them the answer in verse 29. He says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and he was buried and his tomb is still here among us. Now, if you go over to Jerusalem today, you can go to a place that is thought to be David's tomb and visit it. Is it the real tomb? I have no idea. But at this time, Peter is saying David's tomb is still here. If he was the holy one that wouldn't be allowed to rot in the grave, the grave's still closed. He's still in it. His body is still in it anyway. And so, so how could David be talking about himself? But here's what Peter says. But he was a prophet and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body. That's the Messiah's to rot in the grave. Now, just to, to take a step back from this for a second. I absolutely love what we're going through here because as a preacher, I read this and think about the sermon structure that's involved here. Peter is giving a sermon and he starts with something very relevant to the people, the, the miracle that they just witnessed. And then he get, makes a couple of points and some things that might be difficult to understand. And then he goes to scripture to explain them. And then he's going to spend time interpreting that scripture and telling them, here's what this really means that you may not have understood before. And think about what this means from the perspective of the people who are listening to Peter here. You can tell that he expects them to not understand what this psalm is about. They assume that this must somehow refer to David or something like that. And Peter's saying, oh, no, no, no. This is prophecy. This is prophecy about the future Messiah. David got it. He wrote it down. But it's vague enough that we couldn't understand it until it actually happened. Now, there is an interesting point there about biblical prophecy. Because I think a lot of times, as someone who's, who's really fascinated by biblical prophecy, our temptation is to try to figure it out, to try to crack the code and solve it. And I, and I wonder if in many instances, biblical prophecy is given to us not to figure out how exactly God's going to do it, but so that after it happens, we can look back and marvel at how he did it. One of my preaching mentors says, I'm not on the 
uh, planning committee. I'm on the welcoming committee when it comes to biblical prophecy. And that's really what it's all about. I don't know how God's going to fulfill things in the future, but I know that after it happens, we're going to look back and God is going to, in effect, say to us, do you see how I did that? Isn't that cool? You didn't understand that, did you? You didn't know the time, the day, the place. You didn't know how I was going to fulfill that. None of the old people in the Old Testament understood exactly how God was going to fulfill all of these prophecies. But afterward, God can point back to it through someone like Peter and say, look at how this was done. That's what this points to. So Peter wants the people to know that Jesus' miracles and wonders were the endorsement of God, a stamp of approval on his ministry. He wants them to know that his death and his resurrection was not a surprise. It was part of a plan. It was for a specific purpose. It was actually necessary. And that leads to the next point. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Think about how powerful that was to hear that line. These people who are standing up there, talking with them, sharing with them, are saying, we saw it. Now, the people in the crowd, notice, many of them were the ones that were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Because Peter says, you you crucified him. You were a part of this. So many of these people in Jerusalem were part of that group that was there that was shouting, crucify him. They were aware of this. If not, they certainly knew the rumors about Jesus' death. And here, Peter is saying, we are witnesses that he rose from the dead. It's all real. The miracles were real. The fact that he's the Messiah is real. The fact that he died is real. You all know that. But then he rose from the dead and we have seen him. We are eyewitnesses of this. And that leads to an interesting question. Okay, Peter, if Jesus came back from the dead, where is he? Why isn't he here anymore? And Peter anticipates this as well. He says, now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. So he comes full circle. What you saw earlier was the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to do something miraculous that you never thought you'd saw today. You did not wake up and get out and walk through the streets of Jerusalem and expect to see people speaking in all these different languages they didn't know. And speaking once and having many different people understand it. You saw a miracle. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work. You may remember from a few weeks ago. We talked about how Jesus said, I need to go and send the Holy Spirit. It's actually better for you if I leave because then I will send the Holy Spirit and he can be at work in all of your lives. He can be present with all of you all at the same time. And that's what's happening here. And Peter is drawing this connection and saying, yes, Jesus left. He sent the Spirit. And that is what you have seen and heard today. The evidence of the Holy Spirit, the evidence that we have an important message here. And, and why did this happen? Because Jesus is the Messiah. You know, there were Jewish people from all over at the time. There was a special festival going on. So there were Jewish people, the Bible says, from Persia and from, from uh, Elam, from Mesopotamia, from Phrygia, from Libya, from Rome, from Arabia, from all over the world that spoke very different languages. And so this was a, a miracle that they could all hear in their own language. And the whole point of this was not to put on a good show. It was not just to attract a lot of people. It was not just to do something cool, a cool party trick. It was to point them to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And this is where Peter takes it. He takes it right to Jesus. Then he goes back to David. He says, for David himself never ascended into heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So again, he's working in this old scripture that they would be familiar with and saying, David's not talking about himself. 
He's talking about Jesus Christ. You want to know what really matters? It's Jesus Christ. This is where he's trying to point the whole conversation. And he's pointing out that, that David's prophecy here about the Messiah is that his enemies would be crushed. Now, if you're in this crowd and you were one of the witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion or you've heard about it, it does not seem like he actually won. It doesn't seem like his enemies were made to be a footstool under his feet. And yet we know now, looking back, that's exactly what happened. Because in the process of dying on the cross, Jesus actually put to death, death. In the process of dying on the cross, he actually made it possible for us to be, to be freed from the power of sin and the power of death so that we can have a relationship with God. And so in that sense, the enemies of Jesus, who are our enemies as well, were made to be subservient to him by what he did on the cross and by his resurrection. And so David's prophecy came true. And then in verse 26, Peter says the, the summation of all of this. Where is he going with this? So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. I like how he throws it in there again, just to, just to make sure you're clear. You crucified, he is both Lord and Messiah. Can you imagine hearing those words, who you crucified? Have you ever done something really bad? And you thought you got away with it. And then somehow you realized you were found out. You know, this happens sometimes with my kids where uh, they think they have managed to get all the candy secretly out of the pantry. And they think that they've managed to hide all the evidence. And then one day, my wife or I are cleaning and we uncover this stash of wrappers. And then you bring the fistful of wrappers and say, hey, uh, where'd these come from? And in that moment, you know the feeling in your gut, just that sinking feeling of like, oh, no, I've been found out. This is like that on steroids here. This Jesus who you crucified, he is the Messiah. Peter's trying to make the case. He's trying to bring evidence for them and prove it from their own scriptures. This is what David talked about. This is what you've observed. We are now eyewitnesses of this. He's the real deal. You can trust us. He's the real deal. And all of these people have to be thinking, oh my goodness, what have we done? We must be unforgivable for the life that we've lived, for the things that we've done, for the fact that we shouted crucify him for some of those in the crowd. What are you going to do about that? In fact, that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Pierced their hearts. And they said to him, and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And I'm sure some of them said that through tears. And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. There are a lot of theological nuances to this, and that's not the point of my message today. I want to keep focused on the bigger picture. And really, I want to do that through two phrases that I think are so important to, to catch here. The first one is a damning statement. This Jesus whom you crucified is the Messiah. That's a damning statement. And the second one is a redeeming statement. Repent and turn to God through Jesus Christ 
and you will be forgiven. There are a lot of people that go through life thinking that they've messed up so bad that God would never want them. There are a lot of people that have made a mistake or many mistakes or their their mind is so skewed, so distorted, so perverted in some ways that they think, man, there's no hope for me. God wants nothing to do with me. Think about the fact that these are the very people, some of them, who shouted, crucify Jesus the Messiah. And Peter is now saying to them, there's an offer of forgiveness for you. Here's the point. No one is too much of a sinner to be accepted and forgiven by God. No one is too much of a sinner to be accepted and forgiven by God. If the very people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, could just weeks later be told, there's forgiveness for you if you will repent and turn to God and believe in Jesus. And there's not a single person here today or watch online that cannot be forgiven by God. And that is a message of hope. Peter knows this very well, by the way. Peter's the one who was given the opportunity to to claim Jesus as his Lord when it mattered most on the night when Jesus died and he was approached three times with with the question of, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you with him? And three times he denies Jesus and says, I don't know the man. I don't even know who he is. So he rejected Jesus. And then, and then after Jesus resurrection, there's that beautiful moment on the lakeshore where Jesus restores Peter. And asks him about his love. It's a a beautiful picture of restoration. And so Peter is here preaching to this crowd. Not as someone who's up on a pedestal. Saying I'm so much better than you. But you know what? Even though you shouted crucify him. We'll still make a path for you. No, no, no. He is someone who has just recently experienced this restoration himself. After denying Jesus publicly when it mattered most. And Jesus saying I actually have a major role for you in my church. Welcome back. No one is too much of a sinner. To be forgiven and accepted by God. It's a message of hope. It's a message of healing. It's a message of forgiveness. And it's a message that's still alive and for each one of us today. And if you've never given your life to Jesus because you think he would never want me. Because you think I've done too many bad things in my life. This should be evidence that that is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. Now, unfortunately, we don't have all of Peter's message because the Bible says Luke Luke writes this then Peter continued preaching for a long time and we don't know what he said but I do just want us to park for a minute on the fact that Peter preached for a long time I just think that's important relevant I don't know why evidently there's something biblical about long sermons I don't know we'll just let that percolate Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves, here's our phrase, from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, or you could translate it, save yourselves from this perverse culture. And so the question that I asked at the very beginning, and the question I want to pose to you again now, is what does Peter mean by save yourselves from this crooked generation, from this perverse culture? What is that saving that can happen there? We know that it's not save yourselves in the sense of you need to work really hard to do it, because the Bible says over and over again, it's not by works that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. There's no good that we could do. In order to save ourselves. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the message that he just delivered. The message about the Messiah. The message about Jesus Christ. The good news. We call it the gospel. Which means good news. That is Peter's answer to the crooked culture. It's the life changing message about Jesus Christ. Now there are all sorts of other good things we can do to try to influence and impact the culture. But it really comes down to Jesus Christ and the good news about Jesus. And that is Peter's primary message. The answer to the crooked generation. 
It's the life-changing message of Jesus. That's what he draws it back to again and again and again. What does he mean by save yourselves from this crooked generation? He means give your life to Jesus. Why is that? Because if your goal to save yourself from the crooked generation is to do all kinds of good things to try to fix the culture, those might be good things, but it doesn't matter how good they are. If it doesn't change you on the inside, it's not going to save you from the crooked generation, from the perverse culture. It's got to be an inside-out change. My question for you is if you were to evaluate all the good things you spend your time on, good things to do, do they bring you back to Jesus or do they distract you from your relationship with him? Do you know good things can become idols? There are lots of efforts that we pursue in an effort to impact the culture and and our community, uh, impact the world online. There are lots of kind of uh, righteous crusades seemingly that we can embark on. And they may be good at first, and then they become this thing that consumes our life, and they actually become like an idol to us, and they actually take us away from our walk with Jesus. And Peter brings everything back to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Are the good things that you are doing actually distracting you from your walk with God or drawing you closer to him? And I will be the first one to say, I am constantly battling this. There are lots of good things that I can do, good things at the church, good things with my family, good things in the community. And it is actually a struggle sometimes to make sure that Jesus Christ stays the number one thing. Is Jesus Christ and all the good that you do, is he the one that you keep coming back to? Is he the number one relationship in your life? I have a related question for you. When you pray about this world, when you think about this culture, when you lament and mourn and have anxiety about the world we live in, because all you have to do is turn on the news or get on social media and you will very quickly feel that way. Do you pray for the people that are doing the things that you think should not be done? Are you praying for the people that are involved in the activities that you would like to see stopped? Or are you just praying against them? Or are you not praying at all? Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy. He said, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Then he says, this is good and pleases God, our savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. God wants those people who you look at and think, wow, that is perverse. He wants those people to be part of his family. Shouldn't that change your perspective of them? A perspective of love instead of judgment and condemnation. Even Jesus said, I didn't come here to condemn. I came here to save. Are we spending our prayer time praying for the people that we are so concerned and frustrated about? Or do we just have judgment and condemnation for them? Because Paul said, pray for everybody. Because God wants everybody to be saved and to understand the truth. Now, this leads me to another question. If this message is so important, the message about Jesus Christ, it's life-changing. It just changes our lives. If you've experienced that, and maybe not everybody here has, but if you have, if you have Jesus in your life, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you've experienced that healing and transformation, and maybe you take it for granted sometimes, but it's there, when is the last time you shared that message with someone else? When is the last time you shared the good news about Jesus with someone else? In all of our busyness in life and all of the good things we spend time doing, are we forgetting to come back to the answer that Peter said, this is what matters right here. You want to save yourself from this crooked generation? Focus on the good news about Jesus. There are lots of great things we get involved in that become a distraction, not only of our own relationship with Jesus, 
but sharing him with others. When is the last time that you got to share your faith in Jesus with someone else? And I will tell you, just speaking from my own personal experience, it's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough because there are all sorts of things to distract us. And yet when we think about it, man, this, what Jesus has done in my life is incredible. I should want everybody to know about that. But I'm so content to just go about my day and do the things that I do without being open and, and receptive and looking for opportunities to share Jesus with other people. Uh, a week and a half ago or so, I was kind of convicted about this. And so I prayed and I said, God, would you give me some opportunity to share with somebody? Um, it's been, been, been too long. I haven't been thinking about it. Would you just give me an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody? And I ended up at Breadco and a guy came over, started talking with me. He's a believer. Um, and we've seen each other around town a few times. We started talking back and forth about spiritual things. And afterward, the guy sitting across from me at the kind of community table there at Breadco said, hey, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about Jesus? I'm a Muslim, but I have lots of questions about Jesus. And so we got to talk and share the, the good news about what he did and what's different between Islam and Christianity and, and really just explain what Jesus did for us and what it means for us. And, and I don't know if he's going to trust God or not. We got information so we can keep talking. But I want to encourage every one of us in this church and watched online right now to be thinking about a person in your life, just one person who maybe doesn't know Jesus that you could share him with at some point and then be praying for an opportunity to do that. We so easily get distracted from the most important message that we have. We can quickly become culture change warriors without being Jesus life change warriors. And that's what we need to be all about. You know, we can do all sorts of things to try to influence around us and influence government and influence culture and media and make Christian movies and have Christian books and have all sorts of Christian walled gardens and things that we like for our families. And that's all good stuff. I'm not against any of that. But if we do all of that and forget the fact that what actually changes cultures and changes hearts and lives is Jesus Christ inside of us working to change us from the inside out, we're going to have a very superficial spiritual looking culture. And that's been tried. You can have that. You can have the appearance of a good biblical moral society without actually having people that are transformed by God. And it's, it's just a fake. And underneath the surface and behind closed doors, the same bad things happen. If you think that all kinds of bad stuff wasn't happening 50 years ago, 100 years ago, there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon said. What's really going to change our culture? What's really going to change our politics? What's really going to change people's lives? It's Jesus Christ. And we are the hands and the feet, and we are the messengers to go deliver that message. How are we doing? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, this is um, a challenging message. And I think, at least for me and hopefully for many of us, it's a convicting message. God, we've become so distracted with other things in our life that we have forgotten the number one thing you have us here to do which is to go and make disciples. The minute we trusted in you, you could have brought us home to be with you immediately, but you chose to leave us here. And you said, go and make disciples who make disciples. Lord, I pray that with everything else we have going on, that we would allow Jesus to be central in all of that. That we would have a, a walk with you, Lord, that, it, that just shines to other people. And that we would remain open and seeking opportunities to share the good news about Jesus with others. 
If we really want to change the world around us, if we really want to change the culture, let's start with a place that actually brings transformational change. And that is the message of Jesus Christ, Lord. And God, I pray for everybody here that that they would be thinking about who is that one person and praying for opportunities to share with them, Lord. Or maybe they don't even know who it is yet. But God, that you would give us those opportunities and that we would be bold, that we would not be fearful, that we would speak up. We don't have to have all the right answers. Just a story of a changed life in the impact that you have made on us. Lord, help us to be culture changers in the right way, bringing your message to people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.